Thank you, J.A., for reading God's word for us this morning. And uh, as we look at this text in Deuteronomy, uh, I want to remind us that everyone follows someone, and that someone is following you. That everyone follows someone, and someone is following you. Um, What we pass on to those following us, what we pass on to the next generation is what we are most passionate about. That thing that, what the next generation is going to learn from us, what they're going to take away from from us, those who are following us, is the thing that we are most passionate about, the thing that we think about the most often, the thing that we talk about. And uh, when I was in, in, when I was in middle school, uh, there was no question uh, in middle school what I was most passionate about. Uh, when I was about 13 years old, I discovered the Star Wars movies, and, uh, and they changed my life. I, I had never uh, seen such amazing films in all my life, and, and it was all I could talk about. As a, I mean, I would watch one of the movies almost every weekend. It was a little unhealthy, but it was all I could talk about. And, and now, kind of in hindsight, as I think about it, it's probably the reason that the middle school girls weren't, I wasn't thinking they were most passionate about, because all I would talk about is is Star Wars. And, and I kind of cringe now actually to think how many people I must have bored to tears as, as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, um, as, as I would talk to anyone who would listen about the difference between the X-Wing and the Y-Wing and the B-Wing fighter and, and where the Wookiees came from and, you know, the, the tactical advantages of the AT-AT walker versus the AT-ST walker. I mean, you know, and, and I'm happy to report now um, that this passion has been moderated significantly. Um, <laughs> I hope a little bit at least, but but not completely, um, because I, I do still have this picture uh, on my in my office. Uh, just a little reminder there, and it's, well, it's upside down, uh, which is cool. But uh, actually, that's Van Gogh's uh, Starry Night. But there's a little difference. There's a little Death Star in the corner, so that's the the Death Starry Night. Um, I like to have that little reminder on my desk of of those middle school days. But whether you are a parent or a child, the question for us is, what are you passionate about? What are we passionate about as a church, as a congregation? What is this thing that drives us? What are we passing on to others just by the fact that we love it so much that we can't stop talking about us? You see, our greatest legacy is not ultimately our accomplishments, but our kids. But you may be saying, wait a second, I I don't have kids. Bill, you don't have kids. But are we sure about that? I mean, as we look around this room, as, as you look to the donut table before and after the service, all of us have kids. Every single one of us has kids. If you are part of this church family, there are children here, and they are your kids. Even if you're an empty nester and you said, I put in my time raising kids, I'm done with that, now I'm an empty nester, you still have kids at home here in our church. You still have kids who you're caring for. I mean, if you're an aunt or an uncle, um, what about your, your nephews and nieces? If you're a grandparent, you have your grandchildren. And here at our church family, whether it's at home with your immediate family, with your extended family, someone is following you. Someone is following you. And, and here's the deal. Without the next generation... Our faith will die. And it doesn't matter if they're your kids or not. When we're all dead, when we've passed away, who is going to be leading the church? Who's going to be those who are carrying on the faith? Who will be a part of this redemptive plan that God has called us into? And so this morning, as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to see two essential ingredients for the handing off of our faith to the next generation. 
and they are that we must love God completely and that we must pass on his love constantly. So the two essential ingredients that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 for how do we hand off this faith into the next generation is that we must love God completely and that we must pass on his love constantly. So if you've been following along, reading and open here, um, you read Deuteronomy chapter 6 a few days ago. And the book of Deuteronomy is, is the fifth and final installment of the Torah, the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible. And Moses is speaking to this generation of people who are about to enter the promised land. And, and as we think about even this idea of passing on our faith to the next generation, this group of people that Moses is speaking to, this is the generation of people they're now grown up. They're adults now. But they were kids when all this started, and they wandered in the desert with their parents for a long time, for 40 years. They know the consequences of not being faithful to what God has called them to. They know the consequences of what a life of, of ignoring God's commands, of ignoring his plan leads to. And Moses gives giving this generation who's keenly aware of the consequences of a lack of faithfulness. He's giving them instructions, commands, rules for living a life of flourishing in the land that God is giving them. And so notice what Moses says in Deuteronomy 6.3. He lays out, he connects us with these statements that or so that. He gives them the, the reason, the end goal of why he's giving them these instructions. He says, this is the intent of what I'm doing. He says, so that, the first so that is so that they would fear the Lord by keeping his commandments so that they would enjoy a long life, so that it would go well with them, and so that they would increase in number. You see, all of this, the Ten Commandments that we looked at last week, this, this sermon, all that Deuteronomy really is a sermon um, that Moses is giving to these people, all of this is for their flourishing. It's for their good, for their joy, for their freedom. And this little phrase that it may go well or be well with them actually translates the same Hebrew word that God uses to describe his goodness and creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So after God creates in Genesis 1 and 2, after every time he creates one of the major pieces of creation, he says, and behold, it was good. It was good. It's the same word to, that, it, that it may be good with you, may, that it may go well with you that he uses here. Moses' listeners would have been able to make that connection. You see, when we obey God's commands when we follow the design that he has for our lives, we actually invite the goodness of creation into the midst of the broken world that we inhabit. We invite some of that goodness, that going wellness into our lives. So central to their flourishing and central to our flourishing, we see in verses four to six, and that's that we must love God completely. We must love him completely. Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, or 6, beginning in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. We see two things in this verse. First, that God is one. He is whole. He is complete. And second, that he wants us to love him wholly and completely. So first, that God is whole and complete. What the text says is that God is one. And it means that he is the one and only God, that there are no other gods. No one can compete with him. There is no one like him. And this is the foundational statement in all the Bible for monotheism, this idea that there is only one true God. 
The idea that there's only one God cuts across the grain of, of our pluralistic culture, certainly, um, where we regularly encounter those who believe in, in different gods than us, or, or maybe many gods, or perhaps no God at all. However, to be at odds with the broader culture on this point is, is nothing new for Christians. I mean, this statement that there was one true God was something that was new, certainly in this context of, of Moses' land and this time period in the ancient Near East, and also when Christianity was beginning in the first century in the Greco-Roman world, the idea that there was only one true God that we should worship was something that was uh, radically countercultural. But Christians have affirmed from the very, very beginning how the Nicene Creed puts it, that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Do we believe this this morning? The statement of God's oneness also hints at his unity and his consistency. That God isn't a two-faced, that he doesn't sort of say one thing and then do another, or that he acts a certain way sometimes and in a different way other times. That God is one means that, that he's unified, that he's whole, that he's complete, that he always does what he says he's going to do, that he always acts faithfully with every one of his characteristics, so that everything that God does is perfectly just, perfectly loving, perfectly holy, perfectly good. All of these things together. He always acts consistently with himself. So God has called himself, he's one. He can be trusted. He always does what he says he's going to do. We can be confident in that. And the proper response to God's oneness is to love him wholly and completely in response. And so what does it mean to love God? Well, it's both action, it does involve doing, but it's also emotion. It's not merely that we love God through faithful obedience and loyalty, though we certainly do that. But this isn't sort of a devoid of any kind of affection or emotion as well. The Hebrew word for love used here when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, is much deeper than just sort of an emotionally disengaged compliance with rules. For example, this word is used in many places of strong relational and family connections. It communicates deep affection, care, and devotion. God doesn't just want our sort of rote obedience separated from from a heart that truly loves him. You see, the totality of love is captured with this expression, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might or with all your strength. And that phrase is actually occurs eight times in Deuteronomy. It's a favorite phrase of, of Moses in the sermon that he's giving to the people that we are to love and follow, obey God with all who we are. God must be first in our lives. This is the end of this. I mean, we saw this last week with the first commandment to have no other gods before me. Here God is calling us to love him completely and wholly with all that we are. You see, when our love is properly ordered, that is when we love the right things in the right order, we flourish and we thrive. But when we put second things first, everything becomes disordered. That when we don't love the right things in the right order, actually our lives become disordered. St. Augustine was, was so profound in the way that he states this. And, and C.S. Lewis, uh, the great uh, British literary critic and author, picks up on this in a little essay. It's a great little essay. If you ever, I think you can probably find it online called First and Second Things. And basically his point in this essay is if we get the first things right, if we get our right love, if we get our ordered loves correctly, if we have them in the right order, that everything else falls into place. But if we try to get second things ahead of first things, that we actually lose not only the first things, but also the second things as well. Listen to what he says. He says, The woman who makes a dog the center of her life 
loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and all power over enjoying an earlier impleasurable levels of intoxication. Lewis says, you can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. God is one. He is whole. He is complete. And we must love him wholly and completely. But second, we also must pass on his love to others constantly. Notice verses 7 through 9. Moses continues. He says, You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlet between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, there's no, just as there's no part of us that is exempt from loving God, so there's no moment in our life, no second, no opportunity, no rhythm in our lives that's exempt from using that as an opportunity to pass on our love to God to the next generation. Loving God completely means that we are passing on our love for him to others constantly. When we sit, when we wake up, when we drive, when we go to bed, when we fall asleep. And on any given Sunday, we have 30 to 45 children here in this building. Plus, we have students and children who are here with us in the service every week. So remember, even if you don't have kids, you do have kids. Even if you don't have kids, you do have kids who are part of your church family today. And remember, those kids aren't the church of tomorrow. They are the church of today. They are part of our church family. And in fact, one of the things I love about our students is that almost all of our students, high school, middle school students, they're engaged in doing this as well. They, so many of them, and in fact, I saw a number of them down there this morning, they serve with our younger elementary school students on Sunday mornings. They are even beginning to pass on this love that they have for God to those younger than them. It's never too early to begin passing this on to other people. You don't have to wait until you're 18 to start doing this. And, and in fact, remember, in, in this cultural context, you really you reached adulthood at age 13. You became an adult. So I love that so many of our students are involved in passing on their faith to the next generation today because they aren't the church of tomorrow. They are the church of today. This word in, in verse 7 that's so key is the word teach. What does it mean to teach these things to them? So what does that mean and how, how does that happen? Well, the word translated there, teach diligently, it literally means repeat constantly or to kind of engrave in, but to repeat constantly. If you wanted just to bring across the, the Hebrew word, it just means to repeat over and over and over and over again. When you stand, when you sit, when you wake up, when you're in the car, when you're at school, this repetition idea. Um, one commentator points out that the Hebrews were extremely successful at making religion an integral part of life. And the reason for their success was religious education was life-oriented, not information-oriented. Let me say that again. The reason for their success is that their religious education was life-oriented, not merely, I might say, not merely information-oriented. You see, passing on constantly our love for God is not primarily a matter of transferring information, though it's not less than that, but rather it's a matter of shaping affections. So our matter of passing on our love to God to others, to this next generation, isn't primarily 
about information, though it's not less than that. It's primarily about shaping affections, shaping loves. C.S. Lewis, again, he has an incredibly insightful book, insightful book on education called The Abolition of Man. If you haven't read it, it's, it's, a, it's a must read. And he points out in this book that St. Augustine defines virtue as properly ordered loves, which we already talked about, and that Aristotle argued, order, argued that the aim of education is to make the pupil like and dislike what he ought. This is what, uh, what Aristotle thought. Similarly, Lewis points out that Plato argued that the little human animal will not at first have right responses. He or she must be trained to feel pleasure and liking and disgust and hatred at those things which are really pleasant, really likable, really disgusting, and really hateful. That as parents, whether of, of our actual biological children or as parents as the children in our church family, what we're doing is training them to love what is lovable, to dislike what is dislikable, to hate what is, what is worthy of hatred, to feel disgust at what is truly disgusting. So much of what we're doing in training the next generation is shaping their loves, helping them to order their loves. You see, our teaching then is first and foremost about helping them love the right thing in the right order. One of Rachel, and a perfect example of this is, and I love how this happens, when you have your loves ordered in the right way, the information follows and integrates naturally. And, and one of um, Rachel's favorite books um, for this, uh, that illustrates this so beautifully is a book called Honey for a Child's Heart. And it's a fantastic book about the role of, of literature, about children's literature in shaping the affections um, of children. But I love what the author, Gladys Hunt, uh, writes in this one point. I want to read you this section. Listen to what she says. This is such a perfect picture of how the affections just naturally integrate the information. So Gladys Hunt, she writes, One day our high schooler was discussing the whirlwind of destruction left behind by a couple of children who were visiting us. And he said, I got to thinking, how would I teach my children not to pull up wildflowers by the roots and to destroy things? And then I wondered how I myself had learned. And I decided I had learned it from books to respect the world. And this, this high schooler says, in, in C.S. Lewis's books, the animals and the trees have personalities. In the pioneer stories, Indians tried to walk through the forest without breaking a twig, and the settlers respected the land. In Tolkien's books, the orcs are the bad guys who leave a path of careless destruction in their wake. And he shrugged his shoulders and concluded, if you put a whole childhood of reading together, you don't have to take a conservation course. If you put a whole childhood of reading good literature together, you don't have to take a conservation course. You see, when our affections, if we love the right things, if we truly love the right things in the right order, the, inf- the information, it integrates and flows naturally. But if we have the right information and our loves are disordered, it, it doesn't matter how much fact or data that we have. So how do we pass on our love for God constantly to the next generation? Well, we're to do this both individually with our families and extended families and, and outside of the context of, of Sunday morning, but also we're called not to do this alone. We're to do this individually and institutionally. And the two primary institutions that are created by God are the family and the church. And so as we attempt to pass on our love for God to the next generation, we are to do this as families and as a church family as a family of families together. So here are a few things to keep in mind as we do this both individually and corporately together. First, we can't lead. We can't pass on what we don't have. We can't lead where we're not going. 
We must always keep this first part in mind that we must love God completely. That must be central to our lives. We can't pass on a love for God that we don't have. But the good news here is that as a teacher, <laughs> and if, I know the number of you are teachers and you probably experienced this. As a teacher, you, you only have to really be one day ahead of your students, right? I mean, you don't have to be years or weeks ahead of them as long as you have that next day worth of, of material for them to learn from. You don't have to be that far ahead. And so wherever you are at in your Christian walk today, wherever you're at in your journey with Christ, wherever, however mature or not you feel, you don't feel, there is someone you can help along. There's someone, you can even use your weakness, your own inability to speak about the goodness and the glory of Christ that's made manifest in our weakness. This is how God, God works through weak and broken people. That's where his glory shines most clearly. So you can't leave where you're not going, but you don't have to be, way, you don't have to be a spiritual giant to do this. Our kids learn by watching us. They learn to love God by the way that we love him. And remember when I say kids, even if you don't have kids, you do have kids. We all have kids here in our church family. John Mayer in his song, Daughters, perhaps spoke truer than he knows when he wrote that that fathers be good to your daughters because your daughters will love like you do. And our sons and daughters here will love God like we love him. We live before them what it looks like to worship God. God and love him completely and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So first, remember that you can't leave where you're not going. Second, make talking about God, make God talk a normal part of your life. For all of us, make the Bible, make speaking about God, make prayer a regular part of your life with your family, with your nephews and nieces, with your church family. That this isn't something weird that happens, but this is just a normal part of life, that we speak about God and that we speak to him. Students, children who are here, ask good questions of your parents. Ask good questions of me, of the other adults that you have. When you don't understand something, ask a question. And and I promise you that I I don't have all the answers. Your mom and dad aren't going to have all of the answers. But even by asking the questions, you help us to grow as we grow together in a community. Talk about God and the word as often as possible when you sit, when you drive, when you walk, when you eat meals together. I love the Apostle Paul as he writes a letter to the church family in Colossae. He writes to them this. He says, let the word of Christ, the gospel, God's word, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. But he says, teaching and admonishing one another. And this doesn't just include adults doing this with adults or or just kids doing this with kids. That kids have a role to teach us, that we have a role to teach them. The whole church family is to have the word of Christ dwelling richly. And then we're to teach and admonish and encourage one another. And every week we put together a family guide um, that has uh, answer, activities and questions that go along with the reading open here. So if you do have kids actually in your household on a, on a regular basis, uh, whether they're your kids or your nephews and nieces or, or grandkids, pick up. You can sign up to get those family guides uh, on our website in your email. There's an example of one downstairs in the children's ministry. It's a great way to begin working God and talk about his word into your life on a regular basis. Also, we have a conversation starter that's in the welcome folder every single week. It's not necessarily geared for children, but it helps to spark conversation about the message from that Sunday. So you can't leave where you're not going. 
Make God talk a regular, normal part of your life. And third, establish constant reminders. And this is the point of verses 8 and 9 when, when Moses says, or God says through Moses, to bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as front lips between your eyes and write them on the doorpost. The point of all of this is that God's word, that his love, that he is to be loved completely and centrally and wholly, that this would be, con- we'd be constantly reminded of this, that everywhere we turn, that everywhere we look, that uh, we would have mental and physical reminders all around us to keep us on track, to remind us of what's most important. I mean, there's lots of ways that you can do this. I mean, maybe keep a, a book or a list of, of ways that you've seen God provide or answered prayer that provides a, a memorial, sort of a, a remembrance of, of how God has been active in your life. So when you feel like he's not answering prayer, when you feel like he isn't coming through, you can go back to that and say, no, he has been faithful to us in the past. He will be faithful in the future. Read good literature. Watch good film together. Discuss about how does this tell the truth about our world. Every single story tells some truth about our world, even if it tells the truth that our world is so broken and desperate need of redemption. So watch and read good books and good film together and look for how does this tell the truth about God's world, that it's been created good, but that's radically fallen, that it needs redemption and it will be redeemed. Talk about those things together. Serve as a family together. Find ways that you can be doing this uh, together, that we can be doing this together. Pray together. Um, Hang up good art around your home. Art that tells a story of redemption. Art that reflects the goodness and beauty of God and his character. And fourth, don't try to do this alone. We said this at the beginning, but as a church family, we must be a family of families. This is the only way this is going to work. You see, the job of passing on our love for God to the next generation, it's massive. It's far too massive for any one of us to do This is why when we dedicate babies, as we recently did, as you saw that picture, that we don't just ask the parents, will you promise to raise your children in such a way? We turn here and we as a congregation promise to help these families make, keep the commitment that that they've made. Because this is far too big and every one of us has blind spots. None of us gets all the story right. And so we need other people to help us, to help us understand, to help us lead our children and our families well. We can't do this alone. None of us is adequate to do this. And, and actually, study after study confirms this exact same thing. That what this text is t- teaches is verified by all kinds of sociological study. That the intergenerational interaction of, of parents with their kids and then church family, older adults interacting with younger uh, children, younger children act- interacting with children who are younger than them, this web of relationships that forms, this is absolutely essential for the next generation keeping their faith after they've been through college. Study after study has shown this to be true. And one of our stated goals as a church is that we would be a place that has next generational leadership that's crafted around this intergenerational web of relationships. And, and so what is, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of big words, and big, but what does that mean practically? Well, it's pretty simple. Make it your goal to know the name of five kids in our church. They, they always hang out around the donut table. It's not hard to find them uh, before and after the service. And just get to know them. Get to know their parents, ask their names, and then just greet them, whether they're an elementary school or a toddler or a high school student. Make it your goal to know five kids in our church. And it doesn't have to be like the most profound stuff that you ask them. Just like, how was your week? Did you enjoy the snow day? Or, you know, I mean, and, and that's, that's enough to begin building relationships so that that ch- child or that student says, no, this isn't just somewhere my parents go, but this is my church home. 
I'm a part of this family. We must do this together or it won't get done. It's that simple. And, and now this is actually so important that we don't do this alone. I didn't even want to try to speak on this topic alone. And so this morning I would like to invite uh, Holly Justice and uh, Ruth Kenai and, and Dave Kiersnowski, um to join me. And we're actually going to just ask them some questions. These are some faithful uh, men and women in our congregation who I think have thought well and are trying to do um, this well. And so I just wanted to spend some time uh, asking them some questions. So as you guys come up, John's going to give us some stools here. And uh, this is a little bit different than what we often do on a Sunday morning, but wanted to take some time. I know uh, that I can't do this alone, and we can't as a church family do this alone. So I wanted to have an opportunity um, to hear from some others in our congregation who are attempting to do this, who are, and, and every single one of them would say to you, we're not doing this perfectly, um, but we have seen in these folks um, a thinking well about these things. And so um, I'm just going to ask them a few questions and uh, they're going to share a mic together. So um, yeah, we'll just start with Holly here on the end. And uh, as I go down, maybe as you answer the first question, just even maybe say your, your name again. Um, but I wanted to start and ask these folks uh, the question, kind of who do you consider your church family to be or who do you consider your family to be, I guess? And then and how is your thinking on that change? So Holly, as, as you think about family, when that word comes to mind, how do you think about that now? And, and maybe how has that grown, changed, um, stayed the same? Yeah. Well, again, I'm Holly, and my husband Chris is back in the sound booth. We have a three-year-old and a four-month-old. Um, so uh, when, I, when I think of how family has changed for us, we, um, we moved here from Iowa shortly after graduation um, from Iowa State, and we, we moved here alone. We didn't know anybody, and we left our family behind, so we you know, kind of did leave and cleave <laughs> and, um, and had, to, had to start from scratch. So we uh, really found that we had members of um, a small group that became a lot like family to us, um, as well as uh, several coworkers and um, a neighbor or two that, I mean, that's really who we did life with. They were the ones who were there when, when the good things happened, when the hard things happened. I mean, they were, they were family. Now, I would say how that has changed for us or maybe challenged us um, is that because we have physical distance from a lot of our family, it's it's just easy for emotional distance to kind of set in um, unintentionally, I think. But um, we have such a great network here. It fills up so much of those spaces. So that's something Chris and I have really been trying to just, just be intentional about um, family relationships, relatives who are farther away and even um, who are a little more difficult. I mean, I'm sure you have some family members who are easy to get along with and some that are just hard, and we've got those. And so I think that um, that has been a way God has really been teaching us is to um, just to press forward into those relationships and, and just try our best to, to reach, reach back even though we're not physically close. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Holly. Um, my name is Ruth, and um, I'm single, and I um, have some nieces and nephews that I'm very close with. And family, yes, yeah, some family members I'm very close to, some I'm not. I do have a lot of good girlfriends and friends that I rely on um, to kind of help support me and connect with me. And I, just last weekend, I met with a girlfriend for breakfast on Saturday. And she's a very strong Christian woman. She has my best interests at heart. I love talking with her about relationships, things going on in my life. And I do consider her a sister. Um, 
she's a great friend and I really trust her. We have that relationship. So yeah, I think um, it is your church family. It's your work family. Um, I have some strong uh, Christian connections at work as well. So yeah, it, it all comes together to help us. Well, and I know, Ruth, you've been so involved with our, stu- our children here as, at Leewood and then yes. now here at Brookside as well, and, and just a great model of, of uh, investing in our, our church family here. Yeah. Yeah. See, I've been in children's ministry probably for 10 years from other yeah. churches as well, and I do really enjoy it because I don't have my own kids, um, and I used to teach more right now in this church. I'm not teaching, but I really enjoyed connecting with them. They're precious, and, and they have a lot to tell us, and um, yeah, it's been a blessing. Thanks so much, Ruth. Thanks, Ruth. Um, I'm Dave Kierzanowski. My bride, Demi, and I have been part of Christ Community for about 17 years. And um, she and my son, Cole, and my daughter, Julia, are skiing in Colorado right now. Bless their hearts. I'm so happy for them, really. Um, But my middle child, Natalie, is downstairs. And so my kids, every other week, um, volunteer downstairs. I would say our view of um, family is very different. We have kind of immediate family, and I come from uh, a family of six, um, six kids, so ours is a little larger. Um, but then we also really view the areas of life, those spheres of life where we live constantly with people on an ongoing basis, we use the term family there also. So I would certainly say um, that we view Christ Community as a church family. I think some of our closest friends in the world um, have come from um, from this place, um, and then um, work also. We we call our our place of work a family. So we say when someone has joined the family, um, I guess that could come off wrong. Really, if we're <laughs> if we're in New York or Chicago, that may not have a good right. translation. But for us, um, we say that someone has joined the the Dem Deco family, and and we view it that way. That's great. Well, maybe, Dave, we'll just start here with you for the next question sure. since you got the mic. I um, wanted to ask each one of these, uh, how was faith passed on to you? I mean, we look at, at you as, as, as faithful men and women. Um, how did that happen in, briefly, just how did that happen in your life? Yeah, I, and I would say it's still being passed on to me, I mean, yeah. transparently. So um, um, I was very fortunate to uh, be born into a household with two parents who um, loved Christ. I grew up in the Catholic tradition and um, you you alluded earlier, Bill, to the to the term almost that more is caught than taught at times, and I definitely caught my parents living out their faith um, through readings. My mom was a voracious reader, loved to read um, theologians, um, and um, and then our our traditions were that we were very faithful in in our attendance at church. Um, my parents volunteered um, for everything. They served communion, they read, they cleaned. Um, There was a house of prayer near us that was being built by some Dominican sisters. And for a year and a half, three nights a week, and every Saturday we were up there literally building this place. So I think for me in the early years, it was watching my parents live out of faith. Um, And then in my later years, I um, have been fortunate enough to um, listen to people um, to to have um, come into contact with people who helped me see um, Christianity as applying to all of life. And so I would say the faith is still being passed on to me, um, yeah. but it, it started from watching my parents. That's great. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. Um, I found faith a little later in life through a girlfriend at work. I mean, gosh, you know, 20 years ago. She really invested in me and um, saw that I needed that. And we just started going to church together, and I think I've gone to some great churches. I've learned so much. I've gone to, been in some great Bible studies. 
there's a lot of fellowship. There's a lot of connections with those. Um, so that's been a blessing. I'm very intentional about meeting with strong Christian women um, just to help guide me in my faith. Um, that's something I know I need and I, I so enjoy. So that's um, kind of where I'm at right now. That's great. Yeah, thanks so much, Ruth. Um, I was also raised in a Christian home, and my parents were very intentional about passing their faith down to me. So that that was, you know, the best gift that they gave me. Um, and they they certainly did it. But I would say, too, um, a lot of what you were talking about, Bill, about how just how important the church is, um, I know my home church was just very, um, very important to um, me growing in, in faith because um, I, I went to a very small, a small town Iowa Baptist church, 50 people. Um, so like this side of the church, you know, <laughs> that was everybody. Um, but as a teenager, I was really embraced among the adults just as a peer. It, it was a really neat and unique experience because um, I, I felt early on like I could you know, I could share things about what I thought about um, faith, and, and if they had, you know, something going on, they welcomed me in um, to join them. And so it, it was just a way that I, I ended up having a lot of people, just models to look to, and then um, I also just grew in confidence, because I think these adults helped me to, um, to own my faith a little bit, and, and like you said, feel like it, it was something that was my own, and that I could converse um, yeah, with adults about too, because that, you know, you don't have a lot of adults in your life other than teachers and coaches sometimes when you're when you're younger. So that's great. Yeah, I love I love that picture of what the church can be. Um, and then we'll just continue here with you, Holly. Just wanted to ask this this kind of final question: um, What have been some of the greatest joys and challenges for you? And as you are seeking now to, I mean, as this faith is being passed on to you. How and as you are doing that with others, as you're passing your faith on to your kids, to other kids in our in our church and the next generation, what are some of the joys and challenges that you've faced in the midst of that? Well, um, we have a three-year-old, and, you know, there are joys and challenges every day, <laughs> um, certainly. But I think that, um, you know, Chris and, I, Chris and I both manage people at, at work, and so it's easy for us to think of our three-year-old and think about all these things that we, we need to teach her and, and equip her with and manage her, you know, just <laughs> that she can be ready for the world. And, um, and we have to kind of click ourselves into, okay, it doesn't matter what skills she has. She just, she has to follow Christ. Like, she has to know Christ. So, you know, the first thing first thing there. Um, and so we've been trying to kind of figure out what are three-year-old ways of doing that. And, and they're kind of fun. I mean, um, something that my mom did for me was she, she sang all the time. With my mom, life was a musical. I mean, <laughs> you know, you're breaking into song at every moment. And um, Chris and I are not musical people per se, but um, song is a big part of our life with our daughter. And so um, a lot of the songs my mom sang to me or church camp and things like that that I have kind of hidden away um, are the things that we use to, to sort of deliver and plant um, messages of, of faith and truth to our daughter. And, um, and it's just, it's neat because she can grab on to little songs. And, um, and as, as I knew these things growing up, I, when I finally learned how to read, I would read the Bible and find out, oh, that song is a Bible verse. And I, so I learned it kind of 
backwards um, yeah. almost. But um, so things like that are, you know, are kind of fun. But um, the challenge is, you know, of course, when you have little eyes watching you, they do what you do when they <laughs> say what you say. And that's, I mean, that's just very, it's just, it's stinging when you, um, when you hear words come out of your little precious daughter's mouth that came from you. And um, so I think that, um, you know, that's, that's definitely a challenge, but I guess, um, you know, you see this whole cycle of, of refinement when, you know, I've had to ask forgiveness of my daughter for things that I just totally messed up. And, and even though it was based on, you know, just a real screw up on my part, I think she probably gets to learn humility and, and just obedience to God ultimately. So, um, so I guess you get the whole package in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, I'm very close with my nieces and nephews, and I've watched them grow up, and um, we've built a lot of trust over the years, and they're teenagers now, which is very cool. Um, my niece, uh, her parents recently moved to Illinois, so she stayed back in Mount Vernon, Missouri to finish high school, and she needs family. She's made that clear, so I have been able to visit her, and she comes up and stays with me. Some of you have met Elise. Um, she's precious. And going through being a senior and, and, on, and she's trying to pick a college right now, I have been able to be there for her as kind of a second mom to help her kind of work through things through high school. And then in college, because her parents are so far away, I've been able to travel with her and visit these college and be there with her. And she's really needed that support. Um, we have that solid base of trust and I can help her sort through things biblically and make good decisions. And she knows I have her best interest at heart and I love her so much. So it's been a blessing to me to be, to be with her through these things. And I love that I had that kind of connection that she could trust me for That's those great. things. It's a blessing. Yeah. Thanks Ruth. Um, I think Bill for us, um, Every family has a different flavor, and so I think one of the things that's important when we think about for us passing on um, our faith, instilling our faith um, with our kids is to understand how they tick a little bit. And um, for us, I think one of the, um, perhaps one of the um, quotes that probably defines the way that we try and talk in our in our household is the, the C.S. Lewis quote, and I'm sure I'll butcher it as I do with most of his quotes, but he said something to the effect that I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not just because I see it, but rather because of it, I see everything else. And I think for us, um, we've tried to develop a, a way of looking at all of life through the Christian story. And, and as we go on on a daily basis through life, if we see something um, we'll try and say, okay, well, what does the Christian story say about this? Or what, um, how do we process this? When you have a, a tragedy, um, um, like the tragedy in, in Newtown, um, how does that fit within a, a story? How can there be a God and have that? Um, and we know the answer is because it's all broken. At this point, this side of the new heavens and the new earth, it's broken. So we were able to process those types of events and show that all of those events fit within the Christian story. Um, and uh, and um, so I, I think for us, that's, that's probably the way that we um, 
have had the most joy is to be able to walk through life and, and look at all these things. I would say um, the the challenge, um, as Holly alluded to, is um, it's all broken within our household also, and our kids <laughs> see that. So um, luckily, that that is accounted for in the story. Um, I know Bob Dylan had a song called that, I think. It's all broken, literally. Um, and so we're, we're able to say, even on that, when they happen to hear us, uh, I'm not saying this does or doesn't happen, but if it were to happen, happen to hear us say things we shouldn't, um, that that's accounted for as part of the Christian story. So, Yeah, thank you so much. Well, let's give these uh, folks a hand. Thank you guys so much. This has been so helpful. Um, and as we think, I love ending on that note of, of realizing that it is all broken, even in our own homes. And so as we think about um, who Jesus is, he is the one who most fully loved God completely. Um, He is the only one who has ever loved God completely and perfectly. He is the one who enables us, empowers us to love him. He's redeemed us. He's begun healing the brokenness. But he is also the one who forgives us whenever we fail. And so even in those moments when we feel the brokenness of, of our own lives and our failure, that we look to the one who has loved God, who has loved him completely, and who has given himself for us completely, who has redeemed us, and who will one day redeem us completely. Let's uh, pray together and give him thanks for that. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have sent your son um, to show us what it looks like to love you completely and to love our neighbor uh, perfectly. And we ask that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit um, to pass on our love for you to those around us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.